He is risen. He's risen indeed. Man. Um, I loved that line in Liz's faith story where she said that he has taken my mess and he's transformed it into a message. And um, Well, that's our sermon today. It's in Mark chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Mark chapter 16. You'll find that on page 722 of your church Bibles that are there in the pouch before you. Um, I'm going to be reading Mark 16, 1 through 8 from a translation that's called the English Standard Version, and that version is also up on your screen. It's a little different from your church Bibles, but I'll be reading Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. This is God's word. Well, I learned this week that there are three ways to preach this passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. I thought I'd float those ways by you all here this morning. The first option is the option I would call substituted completely. The substituted completely option. Option number two, teach it symbolically. Teach it symbolically. And option number three, take it seriously. Take it seriously. First, there's the substituted completely option. I considered that. You know, the substitute completely option says that the way to preach Mark 16, 1 through 8 is don't preach Mark 16, 1 through 8. Go to another gospel account of the resurrection. Don't even go there. Don't even do it. Substitute it completely. And you can understand why, can't you? I mean, look at verse 8. Verse 8 concludes with, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Not exactly an inspirational way to talk about Easter, would you say? 
Fear? Silence? Fleeing? I got a new Easter outfit for that? Huh? You know, and someone might say, well, you know, keep reading, pastor. Keep reading. Well, all right, all right, all right. Let's keep reading. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, before we get to verse 9, though, uh, there's little bitty tiny subscript there between verses 8 and 9. You see that there? It's, a, it's about in all of our Bibles there. See it there? What's it say? It says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. That's what that says. Is that what you read there? Pretty much? In your, yeah. What's that mean? Well, it means some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. That's what that means. It, 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 means, that, it means that we do not have the original autographed by Mark copy of the Gospel of John. We don't have the original. Now, we have the original autographed copy of the Gettysburg Address by President Lincoln. We have five of those, handwritten by President Lincoln and untold millions of copies of that, all right? But we don't have the original copy of the Gospel of Mark, the original autograph, that is. Instead, we have copies. We have copies. Uh, in fact, we have 5,000 copies of all or part of the New Testament, which means that the New Testament was the most widely copied document of the ancient world. Sacred or secular, we've got more manuscript copies of all or part of the New Testament than any other ancient document, sacred or secular, which means that the earlier dated copies would be considered the more reliable copies, which means that um, the earliest copies, the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. Uh, those show up in history somewhere around the second century, which means that Mark didn't write those verses. That's what that means. Mark didn't write those verses. Uh, uh, actually, the gospel of Mark ends. We know that Mark wrote up to verse 8, but verses 9 through 20, uh, evidently someone else included those. And don't let that shake your faith or rattle you or anything like that because, because you can cross-reference verses 9 through 20 uh, to the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke and John, that is. And so don't, don't, let, that, don't let that wig you out any... Uh, um, uh, so the question is, so, you know, did Mark intend to finish at verse 8? Or do verses 9 through 20, those that you see there, do they replace something that he originally did write that for some reason has been lost or destroyed, something that's very plausible uh, in the first century with ancient documents and the fragile papyrus, etc., etc. So, you know, uh, uh, it's highly likely that uh, Mark did include some sense of an ending, and we just don't have that. That's been lost to history. And, but you see, I have to explain all that to you all. And, you know, that's why I say you substitute it completely, and you're sitting there thinking, thank you, Pastor, I have a ham in the oven. Right? <laughs> You see, 
just, why don't we just, why don't we just go to the Gospel of John and let's just talk about doubting Thomas who uh, one week later saw Jesus and doubting Thomas became shouting, professing, worshiping Thomas as he fell to his knees and said, my Lord and my God. Now that's an Easter sermon I can preach, right? But what's this? Fear and fleeing. Really? Really? Well, yeah, yeah, really, you know? And, and, and we do want to finish the gospel of Mark because we've been in Mark's gospel for quite some time, and, and we're going to start a new series next week on parenting and family life. It's called Modern Families, and, and we're going to spend the month of April uh, just really trying to equip our moms and our dads in rearing godly men and women, and we're getting ramped up for a parenting weekend uh, training with uh, Craig Jutilla that's going to happen uh, the last uh, weekend of April. And, and so next week, we're starting this new series uh, with a message titled uh, from, from Hurt to Healthy. And so, uh, but let's finish Let's read some closure. So, so I took option number one off the table. Substitute it completely. Not going to preach that sermon. Option number two, though, teach it symbolically. Teach it symbolically. Now, you know, that is a very popular approach to Mark 16, 1 through 8. Teach it symbolically. In fact, many pulpits across the country are teaching it symbolically. And by that, I mean, don't worry about whether or not the resurrection really happened. Let's treat this as a parable or an allegory. Let's treat it symbolically. Uh, let's try to get the lesson. It's the lesson that what, that's what's important, not the actual historicity. And so, and so that sermon would sound something like this. Uh, the ladies get up early in the morning and it's, well, it's, just a, it's still dark, but it's getting ready to have sunrise. And that symbolizes that they're coming out of spiritual darkness into some sense of spiritual light. And uh, they're on their way and they're asking the question, who will roll the stone away from the tomb? And that symbolizes human hope. But it's a human hope that is nonetheless somewhat helpless, helpless human hope. Because when they get to the tomb, they notice that the, uh, you know, that, the, that, that, that the stone has been moved away from the entrance of the tomb. And that illustrates and symbolizes that even though humans come with helpless human hope, hope that God can overcome that and help our helpless human hope. And so that's what happened. And they then went into the tomb and they saw this uh, angel uh, who was sitting. And why seated? Because, well, that's the teaching position. And what was the angel's curriculum? Well, that symbolizes uh, the words, uh, he's not here, he is risen. That's our curriculum, the, the church's creed, etc., etc. And so, so, so these women are supposed to go out and they went out silent and afraid and didn't tell anyone, but we mustn't be like that. We need to go out with this curriculum, this message, this word that we've been given and go out and just get on out there and change the world because it doesn't matter whether or not the, 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 the resurrection really historically happened. It's just kind of the point of the, the story that matters. Good overcomes evil. So get on out there and, 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 and make a difference. Teach it symbolically. 
And it's very powerful, very powerful if, if you know how to tell it. Um, <laughs> because at that point, you see, you're not selling steak. You're selling sizzle, right? And especially, it's very powerful when someone gets up and no notes, presents, and wows them. And the congregation leaves, and around the Easter dinner table, the conversation about the Sunday message goes something like this. What did you think about what the pastor said? Well, I don't know, but he sure said it well. (laughs) I liked his shirt. Was it new? Would you please pass the salt? And so on, you know. I considered that approach. I really did. I considered it. I thought about it. Um, And and then the question hit me. Who first heard these words? Who first heard these words? Well, I can tell you who first heard these words were not 21st century Midwesterners in America. World's sole superpower. That's not, that's not who first heard these words. Let me tell you who first heard these words. Who first heard these words uh, were a, a sliver of a minority of a hunted people in another superpower, persecuted. The maniac Nero was after them those Christians, your brothers and sisters in Christ of old, some of whom Nero had animal skins stitched to their backs and then presented before the wild beasts, others of your brothers and sisters in Christ dipped in tar and used as tiki torches for Nero's crazy dinner parties, those were the ones who first heard these words that we just read in Mark 16, 1 through 8. And, 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 and so you're going to tell me that as those people were going to their gruesome deaths, their pastor would say, oh, yes, the resurrection. Yeah, don't worry about whether or not it really happened. It's just a symbolic story about how good overcomes evil. So go die well. And they would then say, thank you, Pastor. Your symbolic, parabolic message has transformed my grinding misery into triumphant hope. I really doubt that. I really doubt that. So so I took the teach it symbolically off the table too, which leaves us with take it seriously. We can take this seriously. And I believe that because, well, first of all, there's names. There's names here, like Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and then there's Salome, names of people. And they don't just appear in Mark 16, verse 1. We also see, why we also see these women at the foot of the cross, Mark 15, verse 40. And then we also see uh, two of the women uh, who 
witness the placement of the body of Christ at the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea there in Mark 15, 47. And so they appear on that first day of the week, early in the morning. Why? Because their Sabbath had not allowed them to complete the preparations for the burial of their beloved Jesus. And so they came, and they brought their spices with them. Because back then they wouldn't have embalmed the body. The body would have been layered between linen and then spices and linen and spices. And why? Well, not to, not to retard the decay of bodily decomposition, but to mask the stench of decomposition. And so they went. And they did wonder, how are we going to get that large circular stone away from the tomb? They weren't in any condition to be able to move that, which was why when they saw that the stone had been moved from the entrance of the tomb, it wasn't as if it was just simply kind of rolled back to where it originally was. The implication was it was like set off its track, this very large stone. And that's when they saw something completely unexpected. They went to the entrance of the tomb. They were expecting to see the corpse of Christ there in state. And instead, they see this, this man in white robes sitting there. It's like he was waiting for them. Scripture says they were, you know, it was like they were alarmed. Which should be a cue for us who have maybe prayed Oh, God, give me a supernatural experience. Let me see an angel and my life will be changed. Do you really know what you're asking? Really? Do you know what, you know what the first words typically are out of an angel's mouth when that angel has a message to a human? What? Fear not. Fear not. That's right. Fear not, which is Bible for breathe yeah, breathe, inhale, exhale. Yeah. yeah, we're not in Kansas anymore. That's right, it's a whole new world. Narnia is real. That's right, breathe. There you go, good. I know who you seek. You seek Jesus the Nazarene. Ties it into history. You seek Jesus of Nazarene, the crucified one. He is not here, he has been roused. Come see the place where he lay. Nothing, nothing in all of their experience could have prepared them for this. I mean it, nothing. Now, they should have been prepared. They should have been prepared. I mean, had not Jesus told them in Mark's gospel What was going to happen that weekend? He did three times in Mark's gospel. Jesus explicitly says the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to get arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be convicted. He's going to be executed. And on the third day, he will rise again. Three times explicitly written in Mark's gospel. And and that's how many times it was written. Who knows how many times he, he would have just said it and it's not written. So, I mean... You know, they should have expected it. And some people say, well, you know, the, the early disciples, they were just superstitious, primitive people. We, you know, we, 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 they, 
people in our generation, we often commit what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. You know, we're so much smarter than those people back then, and they're just superstitious, and they were... Listen, if they were truly expecting a resurrection with as many times as Jesus actually predicting his death, burial, and resurrection, don't you think that on that Sunday morning, at least one of the disciples would have, uh, you know, gotten up and said, hey, it's the third day. Let's go check it out. (laughs) Can't hurt. How many did that? Zero. Not the male disciples. And the female disciples, these ladies, they did not go to the tomb expecting a resurrection. They went to the tomb expecting a corpse, you see. So, my goodness. And then, and then you know, I've heard people say, well, 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 Mark was just, Mark really just, you know, wrote, this is just fiction that Mark wrote, but he's kind of tricking it up to sound like nonfiction, you see. It's myth, but he's writing it so that it'll sound like history, like it really happened. And if that's the case, if that's the case, then Mark never would have put these women at the tomb. He wouldn't have. He would have put someone like Joseph of Arimathea, some, some respectable uh, uh, community spiritual leader like Joseph of Arimathea. He would have put him at the tomb. He, he would not have put, and, 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 and here's why, and don't shoot me, I'm just the messenger. In the first century, women were not considered credible witnesses in a court of law. Their testimony would have been thrown out, disallowed. That's, that was the way the culture was then. That's the way many cultures were then. In fact, um, a pagan philosopher, a secular philosopher named Celsus makes this very point when he argues against the resurrection in the second century. This is what he says. And again, his words, not mine. He says, ah, well, consider who the first witnesses were there at the empty tomb. Women. And we all know that women are deluded and hysterical. His words, not mine. <laughs> and, and his audience, see, his audience would have, some in his audience would have said, well, he's got a point, you know. So then why are these ladies at the tomb? It's because they were there. That's why. They were there. And they're mentioned, they're mentioned three times in such a short space of paragraph, 1540, 1547, 161, that the implication is this. They were still alive at the time this was written. And if you want to check it out, Go ask them. They're still around. You see, we need to take this seriously because this is, this is eyewitness testimony. This is, this is kind of in the genre of, uh, um, oh, Elie Wiesel's Night, his memoir of the Holocaust account, you see. See, it's eyewitness as a form of testimony, as a form of history. And the message is so clear, and the good news is so good. Think about it. 
the very first place where this message was thundered. I know who you seek. Jesus the Nazarene, the crucified one. He is risen. The crucified one is risen. That message first thundered from inside the empty tomb. That's good news, wouldn't you say? It's history. It is history. And this history, his history, this eyewitness testimony regarding Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, this, this, this creates amazing possibilities for our future. Huh? Look at verse 7. The message is, go tell his disciples. Which disciples? Well, the ones who deserted him. The ones who could not stay awake with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. The ones who left him and fled. Go tell, go tell those disciples and go tell the disciple who denied him. Go tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. Isn't that gold? Is that gold or what? It, Peter who had denied Christ three times. He is specifically named. It's as if all of heaven watched him fall, and now all of heaven is going to see God's grace just raise him back up. Be sure to tell Peter that I want him there. Don't come to Galilee without Peter. I want him to know that I forgive him. I want him to know that his life is not futile that his failures are not final, and that his denials do not define him. And if you will recall, Mark's gospel is the written account of Peter's eyewitness testimony and experience with Jesus. You will know then that it was Peter himself who included these two words, and Peter. You see, he knew. Peter knew. Peter knew that Jesus had turned his mess into a message. Peter knew that Christ's history changed his destiny. And that's just not true for Peter. It's true for us. And it's because, it's because of his death and burial and resurrection. It's because he did for us what we could not do ourselves. He removed the one thing that separates us from a holy God, and that's sin. Jesus took our sin upon him, and by trusting in him, we are forgiven. We are forgiven. And, and, and why do you suppose Jesus stressed forgiveness? Why, why do you suppose that, that at the, the heart of Christianity is the forgiveness of sins? Is it because Jesus wants us to be nice? Is that it? Is it, because, is it because he didn't care about justice? Is it because he was simply naive about uh, the evil that, that people do to one another? No. Jesus stressed forgiveness because he knew that without it, there would be no peace, no joy, no freedom, and no release from the pain that paralyzes us and our relationships. Jesus knew that the key to everything important in life is bone-deep, soul-deep forgiveness. And by his death, burial, and resurrection... 
as we trust him to do for us what we can't do ourselves. Why, we're forgiven, we're pardoned, we're redeemed, and we're adopted, adopted into his family. Oh my, that is our Easter hope, isn't it? About a year and a half ago, um, the movie industry gave Robert Downey Jr. an award for his contribution to the, to the art. And as a part of this award ceremony, Robert Downey Jr. was allowed to choose his presenter. And Robert Downey Jr. chose to present this award to him, Robert Downey Jr. chose Mel Gibson. Okay, the Mel Gibson of Braveheart, the Mel Gibson of The Passion of the Christ, uh, and uh, the Mel Gibson who in 2006 was arrested for drunk driving in which he spewed racist language, and uh, the Mel Gibson who in 2009 went through public infidelity and uh, high-profile divorce, and the Mel Gibson, who in 2010 was so intoxicated, he berated his then-girlfriend uh, in the most foul manner. That Mel Gibson. And by then, it was no surprise or understatement that Mel Gibson was Hollywood's number one ranked pariah. So then why did Robert Downey Jr. ask Mel Gibson to present him this award? Listen to what Robert Downey Jr. said. When I couldn't get sober, Mel told me not to give up hope, and he urged me to find my faith. It didn't have to be his or anyone else's as long as it was, it was, as long as it was a faith rooted in forgiveness. And I couldn't get hired, so he cast me in the lead in a movie that was actually developed for him. And he kept a roof over my head. He kept food on the table. And most importantly, he said that if I accepted responsibility for my wrongdoings and embraced that part of my soul that was ugly, hugging the cactus, as he calls it, that I would become a man of some humility and my life would take on new meaning. I did, and it worked. And all he asked in return was that someday I help the next guy in some small way. And then, to the audience's laughter, Robert Downey Jr. said, it is reasonable to assume that at that time he didn't imagine the next guy would be him or that someday was tonight. And then he said this, listen. He said, I humbly ask that you join me unless you are completely without sin, in which case you picked the wrong industry. <laughs> I ask that you join me in forgiving my friend his trespasses, offering him the same clean slate you have me. He's hugged the cactus long enough, and they hugged, and everybody applauded, and... You can see that. on It's a two-minute clip on uh, YouTube. You can see that. Not now. <laughs> but I saw that. I saw that. And listen, I thought to myself, if that's how Hollywood can show grace and mercy and forgiveness, if that's how Hollywood does it, how much more 
should we, in the family of God, who have been washed and justified and made right with God and sanctified and cleansed and forgiven much, how much more should we, in the family of God, treat one another in the name of Jesus? His history has changed our destiny. His work has changed our world. Jesus has taken the messes of our lives and transformed them into a message of power and hope and grace. And that's what I want you to know today. That's what I want you to I want you to know that the grace of God has put us in the family of God so that we can do the work of God in the world of God for the glory of God. And that church family is our Easter hope. Amen? Almighty God, who through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, overcame death and opened to us the gate of everlasting life, Grant that we, who celebrate with joy the day of the Lord's resurrection, may be raised from the death of sin by your life-giving Spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. And God's people said, Amen.